This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. My guest is Patricia Eagle. She's a writer and gatherer of women's stories of resilience and truth, and she's the author of this new book, Being Mean, a memoir of sexual abuse and survival. As a child, you experienced sexual abuse at the hands of your father, and at the time, you were too young to make sense of all of the confusing feelings and emotions that generally arise around those kind of experiences. And in addition to that, your mother was aware that this was going on, and she didn't protect you. And in fact, she was even resentful and jealous of you for it. So there's a lot of complicating factors involved in this. And it's hard enough for a young child to make sense of the world on the best of terms. So when mm-hmm. when you have the the literal gods of your world behaving in these extremely dysfunctional ways, it has a really powerful effect on us. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as a result, we and you certainly did we bury the memories of these experiences because we're too young to know how to handle them or what to do with them or, or to make sense of them. Mm-hmm. And I would love to have you talk about your experience with this and what it felt like as you were having these experiences and also reflecting back 
on these experiences at various stages in your life as you were trying to make sense of them and when you were having the experience of of feeling, viscerally feeling something not right inside of you that was having this chaotic and destructive effect in your life that you couldn't put your finger on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a big question, Tonio. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a lot of time. <laughs> All right, and you're welcome to just you know, interrupt me and, and ask me to speak about something that I may have forgot as I embark on answering that. But first of all, I'll say that this is a very, child sexual abuse is, is a very complex experience. And there's so many layers. It's just like peeling the skin of an onion. And, and those, not just when you peel it, but as those layers come down. And you're absolutely right. <laughs> the children are innocent. The young people are innocent. Even if you're an adolescent or a teen, or I believe even older than that, because it is so confusing, so complex. And perhaps even a young parent who is involved in this on the other end of it, there may be a certain degree of, I mean, it's hard to use the term innocence, but you could definitely use the term ignorance or obliviousness. Well, that's true, and that's a cultural thing, too. And and for me, when I was younger and this was happening, women in marriages had much less power. And I know that my mother was subservient to my father and afraid of him because he was a tyrannical man who had issues, anger issues. And it turned out later that we found out he had mental health issues. But she was afraid, so she was afraid to speak up. She was punished, I believe. When she did broach him, if she did, and I only heard her as a child accusing him of being mean to me, which is the title of my book. And, of course, when I heard her saying that, and since she had started calling masturbation being mean, which she would catch my sisters and I doing, and I don't know, as I say in the book, if that started with my sisters or or with my dad. But that is how the sexual abuse with my dad began, because we would masturbate together. And I was four. And you don't know how to know what's right or wrong when you're four. I mean, maybe a little bit, but you aren't able to. Your skills of discernment are are not there. And what I knew was that I wanted to be loved, and I felt loved when I was with my father in that way. And I also felt good. You know, I liked how my body felt. And that becomes very confusing, not as much as when it first began as when we continued on. And I began exploring by asking questions to my friends and watching other people. And I began wondering what other girls did or did not do with their fathers. And it was a slow process. And I was confused with why, if my mother knew what was going on, why she didn't make a stop. Now, I didn't know as a child that she was afraid, and I couldn't quite grasp or define the power structure in a marriage, that marriage. And I also didn't know what's accepted culturally. It's just difficult for a child to know 
And as that child, or as I became more aware, and, and this is still unfortunately such a prevalent problem, as a child becomes more aware, it's really tricky about who you're going to ask or talk to. I mean, that is just, even with good organizations out there and help becoming more and more available, it's very scary as a child. You're immersed in your family. That's what you know. You know your home, your family, and if there's violence and if there's confusion there, that's what you know. And and I became, as I grew older, because of that animosity that you mentioned that my mother had, the jealousy and the guilt that she put on me for what was going on, I felt like I deserved what was happening and that I was the reason that my parents were angry at one another and, and at me. I I carried that weight of shame. And I think that happens to many people. They feel like that they, especially as children, that it's their fault. Mm -hmm. And in the book, I remember reading you going over to a friend's house and experiencing and, and observing your friend's parents and the way they behaved with each other and to you and your friend. And it was like a revelation Oh, indeed it was. In fact, that was one of the greatest gifts of my life. It remains one of the greatest gifts of my life. I have been able to, from seeing her parents, and, you know, it wasn't a one-time thing. I went over there often, and actually I learned to develop friends because it allowed me to get out of my house, and it also was a way I wanted to know, how are other people? How do other families function? And I saw the good and the bad. And the one that I wrote about was, as I said, um, amazing, such a gift. I saw two people that talked to each other and smiled at each other and looked at me when they talked to me and smiled at me and seemed genuinely curious about my life. And then I heard them argue, and I learned how a healthy argument transpires in a marriage, and that was huge. I had never heard that. I also learned my parents had always said that people that drank were bad and real bad and ugly things happened. But I watched this couple have wine with their friends and nothing bad happened. No one ever raised their voices or threw anything at, at one another. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's not really the way it is. I learned many things. And one more thing that I'll add, the father in that relationship, that he talked with me that he asked me how my school day was, how my boyfriend was, and then he listened. I'd never had a mature man ask me those questions and talk to me. Maybe gradually a teacher at school, but it wasn't anything personal, really, that I was asked. And that really fed me. Uh, it really expanded my awareness. And there's such a huge difference between a healthy, functional family and a dysfunctional family. I grew up under very dysfunctional circumstances. My mother was bipolar and manic-depressive, and she would just go off on me a lot. And she didn't really have a father. And her mother was pretty cool and unemotional. 
So she never really grew up, and my time with my mother was basically like having a sibling rivalry. And early on, my father and mother had a, a very explosive separation and divorce around the time that I was three. And because she tried to get his attention by having an affair with one of their friends, which mm-hmm. totally flipped him out, and he started drinking, and and he was, became violent. Mm-hmm. You know, what we do to one another when we don't know the way to healthy mental health is really, really difficult, and we don't have a lot of models out there or mentors. And unfortunately, in our culture, Tonio, we don't hold mental health treatment as something that's important. It's a concern that I have. I feel like it's as important as any physical health concerns. I mean, we shame people for not letting things go or putting one foot in front of the other. You know, you just need to move past that tough stuff. But people don't have a roadmap for that. They don't have the support for it. I mean, that would be your mother, your father, and even you were sort of just thrown into this life. And how to achieve a healthy life is very difficult. I have great compassion for people with mental health issues, and I'm in that. I'm in that crowd. I have had to learn how to prioritize my mental health, and bigger than that, I've had to learn how to be open about it, to say, yes, I've had mental health issues that has required extensive therapy, medication, and coming back and looking at things over and over again, and it has improved, but it's taken a huge amount of commitment and continually looking for who I can see as a model or as a mentor or, you know, how I want it to be, what I can change. And I'm one of these people that feel like it doesn't matter what our ages are. We can make changes. We can learn how to treat ourselves better. We can learn how to move past shame. We can learn how to be compassionate with somebody that's bipolar or explosive tempers and still have our own boundaries. But we can learn how to navigate those very difficult issues that are so pervasive in our culture. And what about the perpetrators for child sexual abuse? What about their mental health issues? I mean, if we have one in four, so they say, one in four girls and one in six boys, and I've heard statistics that are less than that and more than that. And then also always the comment of that's what's reported. What about what's not reported? But if we have that many incidences of sexual abuse, then that means there's a whole lot of perpetrators in our society. And are we just going to, you know, shame them? Are we just going to talk down about them? Are we going to figure out ways that we can help these men and women? Because that's a big mental health concern. And if they seek help, then are they often reported? subsequently, and so that makes them less likely to seek help. And then we know, you know, there's these neighborhood watches for perpetrators moved into your neighborhood and further shaming and ostracizing of these people. You know, believe me, I'm not glorifying perpetrators 
you know, hell no, but I think we've got to help them. We've got to come up with ways that they know that they can get help and that somebody cares about them. How did they become like they are? Right, for the benefit of all of us. Yeah. I First of all, I wrote a book about sexual abuse, but I need to say that I am not an expert on sexual abuse at all. I only know about my own story. And as I share my story with others, every time I do a reading or an interview, I hear from people about their sexual abuse because it's so prevalent. But I'm just learning about it. And then that layer of the perpetrator's experience, I have sought to know more about that. But I've never spoken to anyone other than my father, who once apologized and then came back and denied everything. So learning how to interact with him as I grew older, and my mother, who also denied everything and called me crazy all the time, you know, my experience with perpetrators is very narrow. I have started reading articles about it and trying to learn more with some of the um, agencies that, like I'm working with an agency here in Alamosa, Colorado, where I live, called Chukasa, and I'm learning more about when perpetrators have been identified and how they work with them and the huge challenges around that because I care, because I want there to be a a growing awareness about all of this. And if we keep keeping these secrets and maintaining silence and, you know, keeping mom, we're ignoring a big problem. And then how are we ever going to create change? I mean, it's the silence versus the change thing. And I think that change can come about in a big way, almost like a tsunami. Once a significant number of people are speaking about something, we've seen it with hashtag me too. You know, right at first it was just this popcorn effect of people speaking up and now it's like this tsunami of people speaking up and we've seen it in the Catholic Church, you know, it, it took a while, but then the thousands and thousands of people that begin sharing their stories of sexual abuse. In so many institutions, it's not just by priests, but by coaches and, you know, movie directors and, you know, fathers and brothers and, and uncles and just goes on and on. You know, especially a child is taking advantage in their trust. You know, that's what's so hard with the children in childhood sexual abuse is that they trust so often the adult that abuses them and so they think this is okay or I should do this. This is a person of authority, if it's a priest or a father or mother. Well, they have no way of knowing that there's any other way of the world being. They don't know how to know Yeah, You know, we develop those tools. And also learn different stories. That's true. Different versions of the way life and reality and relationships can be. You know, Tonio, you read my book, so you see that one of the things that that I'm doing in that book is showing how it affected my life, the sexual abuse. And, and then I became an over-sexualized person and just very confused with how to take my life forward and how to trust people. And I continued to, you know, that title of being mean, which initially was how my mother labeled masturbation, but being mean is what I started doing to myself. 
It was, I shamed myself. I was mean to myself. I beat myself up. I was hard on myself. I didn't like myself. It didn't matter. I took risks where I could very well have died, but I didn't really care because I didn't die before, so I probably wasn't going to die now. And I'm very lucky that I didn't die. And I recognize that what all of that risk taking, I know a few people that have read my advanced reader copy of my book said, well, you were quite the risk taker. And I thought it really wasn't by choice. It was just the pattern that I grew into and grew into early too. I I became a risk taker as a child by riding my bike out of bounds way, way too far you know, dangerously far until I couldn't even get back home before dark and had to happen in on a nearby home. And I was out in the country and I did things like I held my breath too long underwater until I almost blacked out. And it was like cutting what kids do today and other things. It's a way to get right to the edge and sort of get an adrenaline flow, but also a way of beating myself up, of being mean to myself. So what did you get out of doing that to yourself? Well, I guess I affirmed for myself a certain worthlessness. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I would float in and out through the decades of trying to do something of value, and then I would slump. And, and some of this became my own mental health issues as well, Tonya, where I would try to make things work and I would get opportunities and I would get a grant for studies and I would make it somewhere and then I would drop out. Or I was a really good athlete and I'd get to the point of being recognized and I qualified for some really important races and then I would overdo it and hurt myself. And I consistently did this over and over again. It was just a roller coaster that had me believe that I was worthless, that it just didn't matter. I was stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that totally resonates for me. I was shamed by my grandmother for playing doctor with a girl at the age of four years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, innocent exploration being shamed by the adults in our world. I don't think many adults realize how destructive that is to a young child. Your grandmother, she just didn't understand, and she was probably doing what she thought was the right thing to do out of her own fear. And conditioning from our culture. That's right, and conditioning from the culture. You know, until we speak about this stuff, until we we bring it up so that, you know, people at all ages, all, all the way up to our grandmother's, grasp how they can have a conversation, you know, having having a conversation, communicating is difficult for a lot of people because we also don't teach those skills of how to listen and how to empathize and how to show compassion toward one another and how to speak with people at different ages. We have so much to learn. We have a lot of difficult issues, which it, it shouldn't be hard to understand. I mean, life is damn challenging. You know, there's no doubt about it. And being in a family is challenging. Being in a relationship, being in a marriage, 
very challenging. I am a wedding officiant, and I often tell the couples that I work with that being married has been the most challenging experience of my life, and it's also been the most enriching experience in my life, and enriching because we have committed ourselves, my spouse and I, to achieving successful communication with one another as often as possible. Thank you. (laughs) I learned that from the couple that we were talking about earlier that I watched from age 14 until their death, and learning, having a good example. I hope that I can be that to others, not just in a relationship, but just, you know, in our conversation right now, in a conversation with anyone, especially when it gets difficult. I'm speaking with Patricia Eagle. She's the author of this book we've been talking about, Being Mean, a memoir of sexual abuse and survival. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. And I think that was one of the uh, most interesting parts of your story in the book, the way you talked about after remarrying Bill at the age of 53, and mm-hmm. you had learned what you needed to do to make a relationship work. And I found that to be so moving. And I'm especially interested in education around relationships, what we can learn from therapy, mm-hmm. couples therapy, what we can learn about our mental health issues. And and almost everybody I know has some degree of mental health issues. They may not be quote-unquote diagnosable, but many of the people I know who who would never even imagine that they have any issues have issues that they're completely oblivious to. That's an issue. (laughs) and, And one thing I wanted you to talk about was what you learned about how to make a relationship really work between two people who love each other so that they don't start out loving each other and then falling down the well of inability to communicate and to honor their own needs as well as the needs of the other and and know how to communicate those things. Because in our culture, we don't learn how to communicate our needs and desires. But mm-hmm. you, you, mm-hmm. you came to that understanding mm-hmm. after the age of 53 with your husband, Bill, and you, you remarried and you recommitted to a whole new way of being in relationship together. You know, we did try. I will clarify that the first time we got married, I don't think we were even 30. And we'd each been married before that time, which was abysmal. I'll speak for myself only. It was abysmal for me. And I learned from things in that, too. But we did try, and yet there was so much work we needed to do on ourselves. And I was in such a place of confusion and suppressed memories that were bumping on the floor of my consciousness trying to get through. And they did get through occasionally through flashbacks and other things that were very disturbing. And so I vacillated in and out of being suicidal and trying lots of different medications. And all of that stuff wreaks havoc on a marriage. And my husband was having his own issues as well. So 
we divorced and we were together 12 years, divorced 12 years, and we've been remarried now. We just hit our 25th anniversary and that's 25 total years of being married because believe me, those first 12 counted. (laughs) And the second time around, I had significant therapy, and my husband had done things as well. And so we came into it with less secrets. And here's what we did. Here's what we do. And we keep doing it, and we keep striving to do that. We really are committed to having open and honest conversations. We're really open to not harboring, developing other secrets, and not telling one another. I mean, it can be just the simplest thing of, I heard someone say the other day, you know, I don't let my husband know that I enjoy having a glasses in the Dell of the evening. Even that kind of secret, you know, the little secrets add up and become a bigger thing, I believe. To trust being truthful, that is what I had to learn to do in writing this book, which as you may have noted, started in 2010 when I began writing it, and then I finished it in 2017. And I wrote half of it in one year in 2017. But it took that amount of time because for me to learn and build the trust to be truthful, not just in my marriage, as you were asking about how to have a successful relationship, I have to have a successful relationship with myself first, I believe, before I can then have it with my my spouse. And to be truthful with myself and to come out and tell the stories that I told in my book. I mean, there are more stories. You know, this, this is only about 70 stories. There are more, you know, had to limit how much was in the book. But I really shared. I really told the truth. Because that's what I want to practice. I want to practice speaking up and not being silent anymore because that's what I believe will create change. And that's whether it's the change around there being less child sexual abuse, fewer perpetrators, less taking advantage of women through not taking responsibility when when a woman gets pregnant and the man just stepping back and not even being present for whatever happens, whether it's full-term pregnancy or abortion or adoption. I mean, the women don't get pregnant alone. So, you know, even that, to take responsibility for their actions, to take responsibility for their stories and being truthful, that's what I believe happens the most. And I'm going to tack one more thing on there, and that is I practice listening to my husband more and more instead of believing that what I have to say is more important and that I'm right. I practice listening to him and hearing him. And when I achieve that, I find that my compassion surfaces more and that really helps our love feel stronger. So getting back to telling the truth and telling our stories for the benefit of everyone. Many people are very isolated and wouldn't normally have access to these stories or be exposed to these stories. I'm wondering if you have any ideas of how we can overcome those kind of barriers. Well, I'll tell you, it's a little hard to be isolated nowadays 
if you listen to the news, because so many stories come out. I mean, I read the New York Times this morning, and there were, you know, stories again about people that had been sexually abused by priests. There are stories about people abused at McDonald's coming out. We've got Leaving Neverland, the story of the two men that were interviewed about their experiences as children with Michael Jackson. And then there's a great movie called The Tale, which is the story of a young girl who was abused by both her female and male coach. And then the books that are being written, if you just listen, I mean, Eve Ensler just wrote a book called The Apology, just came out, where she imagines and writes the apology that her dad might give her for the sexual abuse that she endured with him. And certainly my book as well. But some people avoid that. I actually have a close friend who, I have a newsletter, and she got back to me and said, you know, I'd love for you to come stay with me when you're in my town, but I probably won't go to your reading because I can't listen to things like that. And I have to respect that people can choose what they want to hear or not. I hope our culture will hear enough of the stories that substantial change will be made, but we can't force people to listen, and people have been ignoring and tuning out stories and how we all, as a culture, can be responsible for what's going on. And people have been doing that for a long time. I think it's changing, Tonio, but like I said, that change is incremental until it's not, until it's a tsunami of change. I don't think we're there yet, but I think we will be. This stuff's been going on for centuries where royalty kings felt like they could do what they wanted with children. And it's still very prevalent in other cultures. It's usually men that feel like they have the right to do what they want with children or women. But we're talking about it more. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. That's a really good thing. Yeah, it's essential. It is. It is essential. And things like pedophilia and child pornography are are things that are are hidden away. They, They are stigmatized as being so reprehensible that it seems like it would make it almost impossible for anyone to admit to something like Mm -hmm. that in order to get the kind of help that they might need if they Mm -hmm. were interested in getting help for that. Well, and they're afraid of being punished, but I can't speak to those. I just don't know really enough about it. But again, I'm going to go back to talk about Oprah's interview with the two young boys that are in Leaving Neverland. They have had death threats on their lives for speaking up about what happened to them with Michael Jackson. I mean, even if you're not a child, Blasey Ford received death threats after the Kavanaugh hearings for speaking up and telling her story. So do we want to silence people? Should they not speak up? I mean, I feel like a perpetrator's denial should be questioned more than victims who finally find their voices and speak what's pretty unspeakable and unspeakable enough that people go, we don't need to know all those details. I mean, I read that in the reviews of The Tale, the film I mentioned earlier. People wrote in and said, we don't need to see those details on a screen. But I say you do. Because if you don't see how it happens, 
And that's just one story, just like mine is just one story of how sexual abuse can happen. And, you know, there's a spectrum of how sexual abuse happens. But if we don't read or see or hear about how it happens, then we don't have that pathway to how to stop it. We don't know as much as we need to know to help stop this and make these changes, I believe, pretty adamantly. Mm -hmm. And also would-be perpetrators out of ignorance who think, well, what they're doing isn't so bad, need to understand how devastating their actions can be. And the only way they can find that out is by hearing those kind of stories. You are absolutely right. Yeah. And I don't have excuses around it. Like, oh, I was drunk, so I, I just, you know, I don't know what happened. Or I'm not responsible. Or I was just really angry, and I wasn't in control of myself. Or I was just so hurt. I feel like, and I, I don't know this, I'm just surmising that maybe what happened with me and my father that he did what he did out of anger toward my mother. They had such a contentious, angry, argumentative, I believe, violent relationship that he then was with me to take it out against her. And that's not that unusual from what I hear. And again, I'm not an expert on sexual abuse. I'm only an expert on my own story. And even then, I don't know what my father was really thinking. He never told me. We didn't talk that much. I mean, I couldn't talk when he was with me sexually. He told me not to talk. And then my mother wouldn't hear of anything. One time I brought something up and she slapped me very hard. So, yes, I, I understand what you're saying. I just don't think people understand how it can affect, particularly a young child, we hear a lot about the effects of PTSD on soldiers in war, but I think many people just can't imagine how a little, quote-unquote, inappropriate touching could have such an overwhelmingly devastating effect on the life of a child and continuing through their adulthood. Yeah. And without hearing these kind of stories, people would never know. They would say, oh, well, that's not that bad. You should hear this. Now, that's a real case of abuse. Whereas each person's individual experience, especially as a child, you just can't compare those kind of things unless you, you really hear the story from that person directly, and particularly children who are confused and have been shamed it's very, very, it's virtually impossible to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And using your story as an example, it wasn't until you were in your late 30s that the memories started coming up. You had buried them away so, so deeply. But that didn't mean that I didn't have the effects of PTSD. Exactly. Uh, that clearly surfaced. And you're right. You know, it's, you can't compare stories. And I'm I've been told that many times by therapists, you know, to not minimalize my story. It's like I, I used to often say, well, why am I so f***ed up? I mean, you know, it, it only happened for this many years, and, and it actually felt good mm -hmm. to me until I started wondering, 
if this was normal and right, and it didn't seem like my other friends were doing this with their fathers, and, you know, then I began questioning. And then once I decided that something was not normal about it, that I began burying it. And then my father did quit coming to my room when I was 13 years old. And at that point, I also started having boyfriends, and he stopped. And I worked hard at stuffing down those memories because that's the only way to survive. You know, it's funny, too, because this is my view of the path. I was a victim. When you're a child, you're a victim. You don't ask for any of this. And then I became a survivor. I had to push those memories down to survive and make it through life, go to school, be able to have friends, you know, be able to do my homework and be considered normal. And then I became a victim again when those memories, like I said earlier, were crashing against the the floor of my consciousness. In my book, I give the illustration of the jack-in-the-box, like dun-da-dun-da-dun-da-dun-da-dun-da-da-da-da. And it was like, boom, jack popped out of the box. And my memories came out, and then I was a victim again. I was a victim of, how do I deal with this? Oh, my God, I'm just, I'm crazy. I, I just wanted to kill myself. I tried to kill myself. It was, how do I survive this? So then, to be a survivor, again, it was like, well, I got to face this story. I had to learn how to face that story, and it took years, you know, to let the story come up in therapy, in my writing, which was journaling at that point, to tell the truth. And it took a while to tell the truth. When I began writing this book, I chose a memoir coach, Mark Matusik, who's there on the East Coast. Amazing, amazing man. And we were working, you know, by phone. And, and Mark has this philosophy that goes like this. When you tell the truth, your story changes. And when your story changes, your life is transformed. Well, ain't that the truth? But it wasn't easy. I would write a story and send it to Mark, and he'd send it back and go, okay, what's the story under that story? Okay? Feels like there's something else in there. He just kept pushing me towards the truth. You know, I had a way of, at first, I wanted to feel better by what I wrote, so I wrote about myself maybe in a little more glorifying kind of way, and Mark pushed me to get to the dirt, to get to the grit of what I really felt, to say it that way, not be afraid to say it, to not be afraid of telling the truth. I feel emotional just saying that because I know the power that's there when we do, when we have the courage to tell the truth, when we have the courage to trust ourselves. But it takes, you know, you have to build that muscle. You have to practice. I had to practice. I had to practice telling those stories. And he made me write stories over and over and over again. And it built the muscle, my truth muscle. That's a muscle that's worth having. Yes, and there's another aspect of it that these type of experiences that traumatize us, even if it from the outside doesn't appear that that experience should be all that traumatizing, these experiences that we can't understand or we can't digest or we can't make sense of and we end up bearing, they become fragmentary 
And as one person put it, they don't have a clear time stamp. So you have these bits and pieces. And there's a line in the book that these experiences are like fragmentary bundles of concentrated emotional energy that form when we're confronted with an experience that's too intense for us to successfully digest. I like that you picked out that quote. Those are the words of Francis Weller, who, oh, goodness, I'm so glad I read his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. And you know that in the subtitle of his book, The Sacred Work of Grief, oh, that happens when we tell the truth. That's why I just felt tears. That's sacred. Grief is sacred. It's sacred when we lose somebody we love. But it's difficult. It was difficult for me to to go into that well and and look at those concentrated bundles of difficulties and work with them. And it can take a significant period of time. I do want to mention again that I understand suppressing of memories, of burying memories or difficulties, because life, I believe, is so challenging that it becomes necessary to do that so that we can go to work and, you know, pay our bills and get the laundry done. When I was confronted with my memories, I was immobilized. I found it difficult, and yet I had to. Soon after I I began teaching school again, I took a break. And when I was teaching as many students as I had in a day, always over 100, sometimes 200 in a day, I had to be grounded. And I couldn't be grounded if my grief was going to pop to the surface at the drop of a hat. And people have children and things they're trying to deal with in their own families. Life is very challenging and how to navigate these difficult experiences that everyone has. Everyone. My experience is just one experience of how child sexual abuse can affect someone's life. There are so many. And they're along a continuum of how difficult and awful they were. But the point is that if we, if we learn to talk about these stories and if we learn to work with them and get help around them, then we could make some changes in our culture and beyond. But it's time. Time's up, they say. Mm-hmm. But it has to begin within ourselves. And we, ha- we have to find a way to put those fragments back together in a coherent way in order to we even do. tell our stories, to we even do. become aware of them. Yeah, well, and you can't push it. And I like to think about it as building those muscles, the muscles of open and honest communications, building the muscle of self-compassion, and those sound letting like, go. Those sound like a number of different muscles. You know, there's the muscle <laughs> of, of opening up. I mean, that that's a huge yeah. muscle right there in itself. Well, we got a lot of muscles, don't we? We do, and <laughs> we just have to, you know, learn to use them. Mm-hmm. Indeed. You had mentioned earlier, Tonio, if I might want to read a short section from my book, and 
I was just thinking about that. Would this be an appropriate time? Absolutely. Well, I want to read the author's note that I start the book with, because I think it might summarize a lot of what we've been talking about and give a little guidance. So this is at the beginning of the book. My intentions for writing this book are that anyone who reads my book who has experience or is experiencing sexual abuse will find more courage to seek help. I would like to help sexual abuse survivors learn to cope during the course of their lives, perhaps more carefully and thoughtfully than I did. Their choices, I hope, will include not forgetting when that is possible and not agreeing to secrets, silence, and being shamed. Perhaps there is even the possibility that, as a result of this book, a potential or actual perpetrator will seek help on becoming aware of the harmful consequences his or her actions have on the lives of any victims. Hopefully, my book guides more people to become aware of how confusing, heartbreaking, and destructive sexual abuse can be for victims, perpetrators, families of both victims and perpetrators, and our entire culture. I know that's redundant from some of what we've been talking about, but it's so important to me. And all of this that you're talking about applies to other types of trauma that we are prone to experiencing as a child. I think it's very important that we learn how to listen to children. Children don't know how to communicate these things, you know. And here's something you wrote. How do I get to that sadness inside of me? where that scared little girl resides, who has no idea she is living with trauma, and assure her that I know she is there, that I am choosing her, that I love her and will protect her. And in the very ways that you always wanted your mother to be able to do for you. Mm -hmm. And that often, for some of us, our parents, or one of our parents, doesn't know how to do that for us. Well, there's not a whole lot of parenting lessons out there, and being able to do that certainly could help a lot of children. I am able to do that now, but I do keep working at it because this is a lifelong journey, and sadness and grief surfaces periodically for me around all of this, and I think it's a lifelong journey, and I have developed practices, those muscles, <laughs> have strengthened those muscles, and I'm committed to continuing to listen to little Patty Beth, as I call her, that's what I was called as a little girl, because I want her to thrive, not just survive, I want to be a thriver. That's the last one. On <laughs> when I was talking about victim to survivor to victim to survivor, the last one should be thriver. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm really just moving into that 
and I'm moving into it with this book coming out and being public and putting all my secrets out on the line, like my laundry slapping on the line out there. No more secrets here. But that has helped me thrive. That has helped me hold that little girl and say, I hear you. I see you. I'm listening to you. Just as we would to any child, whether it's a child of ours or any child that we love, that we would want to nurture and help them in any way to thrive as much as possible. We actually can do that with ourselves, and that's, that's a whole other muscle to develop, to even be aware that we're capable of doing that with ourselves. Well, isn't that a good thing? Yeah, it's a lifesaver for some of us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we want to evolve into more compassionate human beings, and be able to do more and more good in the world and not contribute to confusing experiences. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. Let's develop those muscles and let's do those things. And again, many of us have to begin by doing it with ourselves before we, we have anything to offer anyone else. Well, if we don't take care of ourselves, it's really hard to take care of others. How deeply we can listen to others has to do with how deeply we can listen to ourselves. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Patricia Eagle. She's a writer and gatherer of women's stories of resilience and truth, and she's the author of this book we've been talking about, Being Mean, a Memoir of Sexual Abuse and Survival. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. At the end of your mom and dad's life, you made the decision to move in with them, to care for them. But it sure seemed like you learned and gained a lot during that period of time. <laughs> to say the least, my parents were in need of some care. And my husband and I were at a place in our lives where we could do that. And, you know, we were actually a little arrogant about it. We thought we were, these are my words, not his. We thought we were enlightened enough that we could go and do that. I mean, we lived with them. <laughs> it was so much harder than we thought. Now, one of the reasons that I did it is that I had wanted to write a book. And I thought, you know, I'd be in a perfect place to forage memories. And I could really get going on the book, which I did. But the difficulty of living with them was so much more than we, we needed so many more skills than we had. My husband brought up Ram Dass has this great quote that says, if you think you're enlightened, go stay with your parents for a week. Well, <laughs> we went to live with mine and we found out that we were far from enlightened. We, <laughs> we had a lot to learn and we did learn a lot. We learned an immense amount, and we were tested to the extreme. If I had that choice to do again, I wouldn't, but that's what we did, and a lot of good came out of it. We did not stay as long as we thought. We thought we'd be with them three to five years, and it ended up being 18 months, and then we found care facilities for my parents. My father went into the veterans' home. As I mentioned, he had some mental health issues that were pretty extreme and became more difficult the older he got. And my mother went into an assisted living. 
And we moved back to Colorado. We had moved to Texas to be with them. But it took us years to get back on our feet because we were so tender. We felt pummeled by the experience. And I mentioned I started my book and wrote quite a bit, 2010 to 2011, in a year's time. And then I put it down. I couldn't even deal with it until 2017. And then I became really focused and finished it. But I wrote 50% of it while we were living with my parents. Once again, putting myself back in the situation of the angst that my parents felt with one another, the jealousy my father felt with my husband. He was so jealous when my husband took care of my mother. You know, there were so many things that we hadn't thought of. The actual care I had to provide with my parents, you know, in cleaning them up and they were big lessons. And throughout all of that, they were both in complete denial. They were in denial. You know, Tonio, we did not go into that situation hoping to extract a confession. Yeah, not at all. I think it was beyond their capabilities to do that. When I would tell my mother I'd go check on her at the end of the day, just to give you an idea how far a confession was, when I would go check on my mother, put her to bed at night, and I would say, Mom, I love you, she would say, okay. (laughs) That was how it was. My father, I would take him for drives to see birds because we both like watching birds, and he taught me about noticing birds when I was young. And for him to say at the end of one of those drives, thank you, that I took. That felt good. He thanked me. In my mind, he was saying, thank you for taking care of me. And you know, my dad told me he loved me. Actually, those were his very last words to me before he died. I wasn't there as he died, but it wasn't like, I love you. It was just, I love you. It was such a poignant moment in the book because in that moment when you were with him, you you said to him that you didn't know if you would ever get to see him again. Right. And he got it. He did. Now, what I may do is follow Eve Ensler's example. I don't know if I could or not. And imagine in that moment, for example, as she did imagine her father's apology, that my father might have said, I'm sorry for what I did. I love you. But he didn't. He said, I love you. And I take that. And my mother... (laughs) Her last words that I heard was hollering at the hospice person who had come into the room, saying, I told her she'd better sing to me when I'm dying. (laughs) And, you know, she did. She had asked me to sing to her when she was dying, which is something that I do as a part of Threshold Choirs, where we sing to people at the threshold when they're dying. And I had sung to my mother. She liked me to sing to her. I sung to her most of my life. And I was singing to her when the hospice person walked in and my mother hollered that out. And I returned to the song and finished it. She didn't say anything else. That was it. That's the last thing I heard from her. And she died the day after. But 
she asked me to sing to her when she was dying. I'll take that as a gift. I look for those gifts. That's part of being a thriver. There's another thing that you talk a little bit about in the book, and you wrote a thesis on professional reflective journaling, which is related to all of this. It is. That's why I put it in my little bio. Journaling was really big in my life. I started at seven or eight. I need to go back and find it. I'm not going to keep them forever. I'm going to send them to some journaling place in Washington, D.C. library where they keep journals for people so that in the future they can read about different eras. But I'm sort of a passionate journaler. So I decided to research that as my master's studies as a teacher because, you know, I needed to understand myself better because I knew it would help me understand my students better. And I felt like after I did that, practiced myself, I thought it would help other teachers. And sure enough, in the journaling research and workshops I subsequently did, it did help teachers, many, understand themselves and their students better. And journaling helped me throughout my life. You know, they're not literary works. They're often just places where I just pour out my feelings. But they certainly were exercises at memory retention because I would journal about things in the past, things in the present, things I hope for in the future. And I've you know, I've gone back and reread journals over the years, and it's like, ah, aha, oh, that's when that came up. And it was a great tool for me as a memoirist. But even greater than that, it was a tool to help me understand myself better, particularly in times when I didn't have a therapist. I highly value therapy, and I realize that that's a privilege. You know, that's something that not everyone has access to, and not every therapist is a good one. I would seek out good therapists through recommendations, but it costs money to have a therapist. And, you know, not everybody can do that. And I'm sorry. I wish that to be available to everyone. Another reason that we should change our healthcare system and make it accessible to all socioeconomic levels. I agree with you totally. And you were very fortunate. You came across a really wonderful therapist, this guy named Gene. I do want to mention, too, that you can prioritize it. I lived month to month, especially my single years. I was a school teacher. I was not making very much money at that time. School teachers make much more these days. And a lot of therapists will work with you on the cost, as did almost every therapist I worked with. And really, there were two that were greatly influential in my life. Jean was indeed. And I found him. He worked primarily with clergy. And that was good for me because I've always had a a penchant towards theology. I'm not religious. i just interested in in spirituality and theology and and like reading and listening to people's experiences when I'm not being (laughs) proselytized to. Gene was the perfect therapist for me. And, you know, one of the reasons he was so perfect is when I went in and see him, he said, what do you want to work with most? Where do you want to start? He said, what keeps you up at night? And I said, well, my thesis. And so he helped me on my thesis for six months. I went in to see him, and he pulled out an easel, and he helped me understand what direction I wanted to take research. And that was research for understanding myself better and my students. I mean, how perfect 
And it allowed me, I needed time to get into the depths. I hadn't quite, I hadn't gotten there yet. I hadn't ever called what my dad did with me rape. I thought rape was just, you know, penis in the vagina. I didn't know that any kind of activity, you know, the masturbation that we did together was rape. And as I began uncovering that, more things came up. But that I was able to say that, yes, my father raped me. And therapy, a good therapist, helped me arrive at that place. And I think that's such a wonderful example of a good therapist to to actually ask you, what's at the forefront of your concern right now? What's, what's keeping you up at night? Or what's the issue in your face at this moment? Mm-hmm. Not to try and dive directly into the classic areas of psychotherapy, but to to listen to your patient and let them unfold in their own natural way, in their own natural time. Well, Gene was a good listener. He also taught me how to laugh more and to laugh at myself, even when it was really painful stuff. He was very good at doing that. I think humor is maybe the most important muscle. It is. Indeed it is. It's so easy to take ourselves and our our own problems way too seriously. I mean, not that they're not serious, but, but to just make them like a monolith unto themselves. Yeah. Eclipsing yeah. everything and everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. So you have a website, and could you talk about the work that you do and what you offer? Well, first of all, my website's easy to remember because it's my name, patriciaeagle.com, and there are different things. I, I am an author now. This is my first book. I hope it's not my last book. I'm very interested in... I love hearing other women's stories of resilience, and I would really like to write books about women's stories of resilience because I think not only would it feed me, it does feed me when I hear other women talk about how they've become resilient. I also think it would really help other young women. And I'm talking about real stories, too, and real stories of women across the board. I'm talking about women that are ranchers, women that have been sexually abused, women that have been in war, women that are disabled, women that have been on drugs, women that are farmers, that live in poverty, you know, because of the color of their skin, how they've been treated and how they've survived and thrived. I want to write those stories. So there's that focus, but It's barely a focus because I'm still in the throes of this book and talking to people about this book, but I do want people to know that that's where I'm heading. I see books about women at the bookstore, but they're usually women that are celebrities or they have fame in some way, and also they're women that have often spent a significant amount of time and money on altering their looks. And I want to talk to women that wear their lives, that don't want to change how they look, that they're proud of what they've lived. So those are things. And then I mentioned earlier, Tonio, that I also am a life cycle celebrant. I officiate weddings and memorials 
And in that situation, I write the story of the couple getting married or the person that has died, and I weave those stories into ritual and ceremony. And again, that's something I'm, I'm stepping back from this year as I go on book tour and talk about my book, but it's something that I find very meaningful. And and it's not just ceremonies around that. Like I will be doing a ceremony where I have hired a life cycle celebrant to come in and do a ceremony around my book coming out because it's a significant transition. And I believe that as much as we acknowledge those significant times in our lives, the greater meaning we give to it. And that's important to me. So those are things that you will read about and see on my website and also just know that are of importance to me. And they all seem to go together very well. (laughs) Well, it does to me. And I feel very honored to be in this place of putting this book out right now and putting the attention on it. And not just for my own healing, but for where this will go and how it can create change in other people's lives Mm -hmm. and also that flowing into perhaps influencing other women to share their stories of resilience, whether it's with me when I write those stories that will go in a book or whether they just share their own stories so that we help one another more. We give one another more courage and strength. Mm Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Eve Ensler and her new book, The Apology. Eve Ensler is is an amazing example of that. Mm -hmm. Isn't she? she? She's incredible. But she is a celebrity now as a result of that. But her story is is so extreme and, and how she has survived it and how she has gone on to help so many women around the world. She's a force. She's a (laughs) What a wonderful Uh example. What an incredible role model. But so is Tarana Burke, if I'm saying her name right, who started the Me Too movement. Yes, absolutely. You know, she's she's done something that's that's caught on that. There's a tsunami. And so is Marilyn Vandiver, who wrote Miss America by Day. And she's someone that really encouraged me to pick up and get going on my book and gave one of the blurbs on the back of my book. You know, a former Miss America who is a childhood incest survivor, and she's done a lot to raise national awareness of sexual abuse. And I hope that my story will become a part of that collective and be a part of this tsunami of awareness and change that's going on, and that it will help create change. Well, one of the things that I really found very powerful and unique about your story is the way you talked about the complexity of the confusion, the emotional confusion that you experienced throughout your life and all the stories that you told about how it affected you and the things that happened to you during your life and how you sensed that there was was something deep down inside that was having this effect on you that, that you couldn't put your finger on. And I think that many of us don't realize that we all have things like that inside of us that are having these uncharted effects in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that so many people have challenging things and confusing things that have happened in their lives. And it requires a commitment to 
learning and being aware and going past those as much as is possible or learning how to live with them in mm-hmm. a way, you know, so an awareness isn't brutal but is helpful. And like I said earlier, we don't get a lot of role models for how to do that, but we're beginning, you know, Eve is doing it. Marilyn Vandenberg propelled me toward telling my story. Mark Matusik definitely did in his own memoir, When Your Falling Died. I mean, just the title, When You're Falling Dies, like, go ahead. Pema Chodron really helped me, too. What was her book, When Things Fall Apart? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people. You know, I'm listening now on Audible to Laurie Gottlieb's book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. <laughs> you know, she's a therapist, and she ended up getting therapy and normalizing getting therapy and that it shouldn't be a shameful thing. As we see that that's okay to do and please don't shame somebody that wants to get therapy or is asking for help then more and more people will be able to deal with that level of complexity and confusion that may be in their lives for a wide array of reasons yes that whole area of psychotherapy that kind of therapy needs to be completely destigmatized yeah yeah and Getting back to what you mentioned about Eve Ensler's The Apology, you know, imagining her father apologizing to her or having any kind of conversation with somebody who either has passed on or who's not receptive to having that conversation. I have those kind of conversations, those imaginary conversations within myself. And I have to say that the term imaginary can be very belittling in the way that our culture usually regards imagination. Mm -hmm. I find it to be very, very powerful. I know from, I can speak for myself, I have a lot of these kind of conversations with people in my life, which have helped me to resolve traumas from past relationships. And even Mm -hmm. with my mother who died a year, year and a half ago, who I did not get along well with. But there are creative ways to make peace. Mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of role play, talking it out or writing a letter or writing a book, like Eve did, where she imagined what her father might say, or writing a book like I did, where, even though it's a memoir of sexual abuse and survival, there are places where I even mentioned that as I imagined the conversation would have gone. You know, sometimes I wrote the story based on what my mother had told me or what a sister had told me. And then the rest is how I imagined it went because I was too young to remember. Like one story is when I was 10 months old. I don't remember that. At four, I have snippets of memory and stories that were told to me that helped me construct the story. But all of those ways are helpful, and I'm glad it helped you and will continue to help you and and help others deal with painful Mm -hmm. experiences with people. Right. And really, you just speak from your heart in the Mm -hmm. moment, you know, whatever comes up, and then just listen wherever they happen to be, whether they're, you know, in, in the next world or in their own oblivion. Just listen and allow them to respond from perhaps a deeper place than they even know exists within themselves. Mm -hmm. 
deep listening. Deep listening is really valuable. And I used that in writing my book. There were times where I got myself comfortable, had my laptop on my lap, closed my eyes, and just listened at that deep, deep place to ride out a memory that I'd been carrying for years. And sometimes that involved a conversation that I was having Mm -hmm. with my mom or dad or, or someone else. It was from that place of deep listening, or we could call it deep attentiveness. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a kind of creative way of, I mean, we're almost unlimited in the possibilities that are available to us if we mm-hmm. can just open up to recognize the possibilities. And mm-hmm. one thing that inhibits possibilities is when we're in a state of fear or anger or rage or feeling traumatized, feeling like a victim. It's hard to make progress where in, in those states, but if we can somehow find a, a way to relax, like you would rock yourself. At one point you said you had four rocking chairs in your place. <laughs> I have three in my living room right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just to give you an idea, yes, I still rock. It's very calming to me, but you know, I, I rocked as a, apparently as a baby. I rocked myself, probably because hearing angry voices a lot. It's a way I learned how to calm myself. I did the same thing as a child. Uh, And I continued up into my young adult years. People Mm -hmm. would say, oh, Mm -hmm. you were rocking in your sleep. And I would would be terribly embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. You rocked in your sleep. At least I don't hit my head on walls anymore. I used to inflict pain get me to take focus off other stuff that I didn't understand. I don't know. Maybe it's like cutting. I hadn't done that for years. But my mother got me into rocking in a rocking chair to keep me from hitting my head on walls. Hmm. Have a hand on my dog's head, which is another thing that's very important. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be alive right now had I not had dogs. They've saved my life many times, more than a rocking chair. So, yeah, there's all kinds of things that we develop. You know, it's good when it's things that aren't bad for us, you know, like drugs or alcohol that we begin to rely on. Rocking chairs and dogs ain't a bad idea. (laughs) Another thing that's really been important to me is that I began taking solitary retreats. I started doing that in my 30s, and it was very helpful. So I found places where I could have extended time of silence and they were always in nature because I enjoy being outdoors and I really like to watch birds. So I would arrange for cabins or spiritual retreats or things where I could be alone and or silent and I still do that and that's been very beneficial to me. It's allowed me to calm the chatter in my mind and tamp down my fears and worries and just find a place of peace in being quiet and being outdoors. My guest has been Patricia Eagle, the author of Being Mean, a memoir of sexual abuse and survival. And I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. I could relate to so much in it. I'm glad to hear that. I hope it resonates with others. You know, I don't want everyone to 
to identify with the sexual abuse part, but just becoming aware that it is so prevalent in our society and that awareness can help create change. And that's what I would like to see happen. And what you've written about applies to any form of trauma that that we may have experienced as a child or at any Mm -hmm. time in our life. Yeah, I agree. And it really dives deeply into the effects of it and how confusing it can be for ourselves and how mystifying and difficult it can be for people on the outside to understand, in particular people who are perpetrators or potential would-be perpetrators who may think that they have the best of intentions or no malice, you know, malicious intention. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think by reading this and any story like this could help prevent them from stumbling down that path. Mm-hmm. May it be so. May it be so. May it be so. Yes. Indeed. Well, thank you oh, so Tonya, much. Thank you for taking this extraordinary amount of time and reading my book. And thank you for your care about this whole situation. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. And that was Patricia Eagle. She's a writer and gatherer of women's stories of resilience and truth. And she's the author of this brand new book, Being Mean, a memoir of sexual abuse and survival. Her website is patriciaeagle.com. Life while you wait. Performance without rehearsal. Body without alterations. Head without premeditation. I know nothing of the role I play. I only know it's mine. I can't exchange it. I have to guess on the spot just what this play is all about. Ill prepared for the privilege of living. I can barely keep up with the pace that the action demands. I improvise, although I loathe improvisation. I trip at every step over my own ignorance. I can't conceal my hayseed manners. My instincts are for happy histrionics. Stage fright makes excuses for me, which humiliate me more. Extenuating circumstances strike me as cruel. Words and impulses you can't take back, stars you'll never get counted, your character like a raincoat you button on the run, the pitiful results of all this unexpectedness. If only I could just rehearse, one Wednesday in advance, or repeat a single Thursday that has passed. But here comes Friday with a script I haven't seen. Is it fair, I ask, my voice a little hoarse since I couldn't even clear my throat off stage? You'd be wrong to think that it's just a slapdash quiz taken in makeshift accommodations. Oh, no. I'm standing on the set, and I see how strong it is. The props are surprisingly precise. The machine rotating the stage has been around even longer. 
the farthest galaxies have been turned on. Oh no, there's no question. This must be the premiere. And whatever I do will become forever what I've done. That was Amanda Palmer reading Vishlava Burska's Life While You Wait. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. Thank you.